Welcome back. This is Courtney, and you're listening to My Vagina Hurts, a podcast where we decided to take our raw, revealing, and sometimes outrageously spicy dinner chats, put mics in front of our faces, and hit record. Friend, boss, business owner, wife, and mom are just some of the roles we juggle. But in reality, we're just some stressed and sexy women here to give you an unfiltered perspective on the not-so-glamorous, but sometimes fabulous, and downright exhausting things we deal with in today's world. Get ready to laugh, gasp, and maybe even shed a tear as we release new episodes each and every week. No BS, no pretending, just pure, unapologetic realness from us to you. Welcome back to My Vagina Hurts. I'm Courtney. I'm Devin. And I'm Kelly. Today, we are talking about money. I affectionately titled this episode, episode Cash Rules Everything Around Me, um, for, you know, 90s nostalgia rap, but also because, you know, money is something that rules everything around us, but we find it so difficult to talk about. Um, Our relationship with money is really emotional at the core. Hopes and fears, guilt and shame, they all play a significant role in our financial lives. And as women, whether we work out of the home or work inside of the home raising children, our ability to speak frankly with our friends, partners, coworkers about money has the ability to positively impact our current state and that of our children. So it's really important that we become comfortable having these conversations. So we're here today to uh, break break the ice, if you will, <laughs> and talk a little bit about our past, present, and future relationship with money and some things we've learned along the way that could possibly help somebody listening. So I have lots of questions for both of you today, and I'm excited to jump into this. So the very first thing I want to ask before we get into any figures, facts, stats, is on a scale of one to 10, with one being the worst and 10 being the best, how would you rate your emotional relationship with money? I don't know, probably like a, a, this is a weird question for me, seven? I I don't know. I don't know if I have an emotional, sure I have an emotional <laughs> maybe, relationship with money. Maybe that's, an, maybe maybe that's a one. one. <laughs> I, just don't know, I don't know if I get it. Yeah. Well, we're going to dig into it. Kelly, what about you? Um, my emotional relationship with money is probably about a six. Um, yeah, I would say mine is probably a five. And that is like a recent uptick in the number if you had asked me five years ago it was probably like a two so i have come a long way (laughs) yeah mine was much worse before so yeah Uh, oh growing up exactly (laughs) (laughs) so i want to read you the definition of four money scripts and then i want to ask you which of these resonate most with you and obviously it can be a mixture of any of the four And these money scripts are just kind of the ways in which people might think about money or have an emotional relationship with money. Where did you find the definitions of these? Yes. So I'm so glad you asked. We will put it in the show notes. 
So this came from an uh, NPR article in 2021 that was about emotions and money and what it means to be financially whole, not from the standpoint of, oh, all my bills are paid, but to be emotionally financially whole, which is, I think, a really interesting way to kind of think about your relationship with money. Got it. Yeah. So the first one is money avoidance. And this pattern describes a general belief that money is bad. So people who might resonate high in this category will believe that there's virtue in living without money and that wealthy people are greedy or immoral and that they don't deserve money themselves. This group also might have trouble overspending and sticking to a budget. The second is money worship. So this is the opposite of money avoidance and money worship is where people put money on a pedestal, believing that it fuels happiness and solves most of life's problems. And people in this group tend to be younger, have a relatively low income net worth and then carry credit card debt. Third is money vigilance. This tends to be the money script of the ultra wealthy. People in this group value a bargain they don't spend above their means, and they place a huge emphasis on protecting the capital that they already have. While saving and frugality can be positive, an excess of vigilance might lead people in this group to suffer from financial anxiety or reluctance to ever spend the money. And then finally, there's money status. This is where people equate their self-worth with their net worth. And financial psychologist Dr. Brad Klontz told the study that people in this group like to outwardly display their wealth. They're more likely to spend too much, gamble, and potentially be financially dependent on others. So I'm going to ask you if any of these things resonated with you. And I first want to kind of say what I found the most interesting is there were parts of all of these money scripts that I resonated with and it was like oh wow you know I have felt a lot of these different things at one time or another and I have opinions about which of these I feel like are maybe good or not so good so Kelly I'll start with you did any of the sentences in the definitions kind of jump out at you yes and I very much relate to what you just said and that I can see myself in all of these at some point in my life and have grown from different places and changed and you know my perspective has changed but currently i find myself between worship and vigilance mm. and mostly because i think i lean more vigilance because i'm more um diligent about tracking spending and budgeting and saving for the future and you know what does my kid need? That kind of thing. Um, but the worship is probably when I'm in my like lowest points, when I am falling into like, oh, if I just have more money, it would make me happier mm -hmm. kind of thoughts. Right. Um, but yeah, those, those are the two that I felt most connected to. Love it. All right, Devin, what about you? Well, I originally answered similar to Kelly, where I, was, I found myself between worship and vigilance on, on some different things. But as you read out loud avoidance, I heard it differently than I read it in my head. And so I added that one in as sort of a combo platter. Mm -hmm. um, I do not believe that money is bad. 
I do believe that there are wealthy people and money makes this greed energy Mm -hmm. happen and they tend to skew to protect that their own bubble of money and sort of forget everybody else. I do believe that. I don't believe that money is bad, generally speaking, um, which is why I also worship money. <laughs> so, um, I mean, I don't like, I feel like some of these definitions are like the extreme yes, definition definitely. for each of those pockets. Yeah. And I don't think I fall anymore on the extreme of any of them. I think I toggle daily between both worship and vigilance, not necessarily how Kelly was saying when she's in her low space from a mental standpoint, she might go more money worship and vice versa. I think I balance both. I'm like juggling both Mm -hmm. always like, and probably something I have to work through in therapy. Right. Right. And I think that I I like that you brought that up, that all of these are kind of the extreme, which kind of makes sense. Usually when people are trying to broadly categorize anything, they have to kind of go to the extremes to make each category separate from another. But I can see how all of these would intertwine and overlap. And I've absolutely been in all of these different um, spaces. And I think it would be interesting to kind of make make a little pie chart of where we think, um, you know, what percentage of each of these we think we fall in. Um, for me right now, I am, um, I am vigilant in the sense that, you know, I save, I definitely care about the future and the future of my children. Um, I absolutely value a bargain 1000%. Um, (laughs) but I will say that money status is something that is, ranks very high in my pie chart right now. Um, I don't necessarily think I equate my self-worth with money, but I definitely resonate with the outward display of wealth, more likely to spend too much. Like that's where I am in my life right now. Like throw it in the bag. I want all the things. And what's funny about that is I think, and we're going to get into kind of some childhood ideas about money. I think this is a direct correlation of like the pendulum swing, which was my historical money avoidance upbringing is now swinging Mm. to the money status side. And I need it to like get back to somewhere in the middle, but we're going to talk about, you know, childhood's trauma. (laughs) If we think about concepts that have to do with money, we might be surprised to realize that the concepts evoke emotion that are rooted in our life experiences. So I'm going to read some concepts that are related to money, financial management, things that happen in your life that have to do with money. And I'm going to kind of popcorn around the three of us and just have you kind of say the first thing that comes to mind when I ask you this phrase, okay? So Kelly, I'm going to ask you first. Sounds the good. first concept is winning the lottery. Mm, freedom. Oh, okay. <laughs> uh, Devin, budgeting. Oh, pain in the ass. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So mine is having no reserve for a financial emergency. Um, ben there. <laughs> mm uh kelly receiving an inheritance 
nerve wracking. Mm. Devin, investing in the stock market. Oh, pain in the ass. <laughs> <laughs> Why am I getting all the work ones? The ones that I don't know. I'll ask, I'll ask you. <laughs> um, mine is husbands managing the money. Um, resentful. Mm, good word. Kelly, yours is wives managing the money. Ugh. <laughs> uh, I think. <laughs> uh, well, I mean, I, I don't know if there's a word. Um, well, I don't think anyone should be. One person should not be managing mm-hmm. it independently. It yeah. should be a collaborative thing. And Devin, life insurance. You do get all the work ones. I do. Sorry. I do. Uh, yes, have it. <laughs> Good. Um, and the final one, I'll ask everybody's answer. Uh, I'll start back with you, Devin, having $30,000 in student loans. Yes. Have it. (laughs) Kelly. (laughs) I don't have it. And I'm glad I don't. Ditto. I don't have it. I'm glad I don't. And I'm going to do everything in my power to make sure my kids don't either. (laughs) Good. Good one. I like that. All right. So now we're going to get into... The way we think about money when it comes to certain aspects of our lives, and that's everything from marriage to career to friendships and family. So I would love to ask some questions about these topics and have you both give your insight and answers from the lens of what are some things that you've learned along the way, some experiences that you've had along the way, and maybe some ways that you have positively shifted the relationship between money and the things that we're going to talk through. So the first one is money and friendships. And this one, I kind of lump in how we all kind of grew up hearing the adage, you know, you don't talk about money, you don't talk about your salary. And I would like to understand first from you guys, was there, was there a turning point for you with friendships specifically where you felt like, oh, this friend is close enough to me or I trust this friend enough? Like at what point with a friendship did you feel like you were safe to talk about money? I mean, I, I would say that it was well into my adulthood and career phase. It was not early on. Um, and it was solely based on the group I was around encouraging that conversation. There were already women around sort of giving advice on how to negotiate salary and like they made the space there that it wasn't so taboo. And then directly with a friend, it was when that friend shared their salary first outwardly, like unprompted, like I didn't ask for the information. And it was in sort of a negotiate, like, this is what I'm trying to negotiate. This is what I'm trying to do. And outside of that, it was always um, hush, hush in terms of the real number. It was Nobody would talk about an actual number. And I have always struggled with that going like, I I didn't understand why. I was like, I just don't get why it's secret. Why are, why is everyone hiding that number? Like I, and I still struggle when people are like, oh, don't, don't talk about it. I'm like, but why? Like, 
what is it? Now I could tell you my thoughts on why people do that from a work (laughs) standpoint, but like, I just, you know, I still struggle with that. And now I have friends that it's like a normal, like, it's not a weird thing to talk about. Like it, we celebrate, like the three of us celebrate it, right? Like it's, it's a good thing when one of us gets a big raise or a promotion or something and and we're celebratory. We're not envious of each other. Um, But that's a special thing to find, I think. It is. And I, I do think that that's, that does make, that makes the conversation really, really hinge upon the, the type of friendship that you have, mm-hmm. because it's not something that you can talk to a, with every, in, just anybody, because you don't know how they're going to receive it. Kelly, did you, did you have, let's say, do you have any recollection of the first time maybe somebody was open talking about salary with you or talking about how much money they made with you and from a friendship perspective and what was that conversation like? How did it make both of you feel? I have a couple thoughts on this. I think the salary specifically back when I first started working and my salary was shit. And I remember having conversations with other women that I had graduated college with and who were getting similar jobs and they were, telling one of them specifically was sharing what she was making. And I, in the, in retrospect, realized like how brave it was of me to do it. But I, the next day went to my boss and told them, I want to be making this amount. And they were like, what do you mean? How do you, where's this coming from? And I said, I have friends in the industry and they are making this. And that is what I want to be making by this, you know, in three months or whatever the time period was. And it wasn't, I wasn't in a place where I felt like, oh, this isn't something I should do. Like something instinctually said to me, like, it's okay to ask for this. Mm -hmm. Um, So to hear women feel uncomfortable having to have the conversations with their employers about money, that actually that concept feels a little foreign to me, like Mm -hmm. the uncomfortability, because it was just something that became innate. And then as I continued on in my career, I started doing freelance right away. And so then I was constantly talking to people about right. how much they were charging, how much money this was worth, that was worth. So money became a much easier t- a conversation. And then comparing how much people were making um, you know, from one thing to the next mm-hmm. was, was pretty easy. And um, so, yeah, it wasn't – it was pretty early in my career. So, yeah, I was probably like 20 when I started talking about it. So I think it kind of goes without saying, you know, and and we'll get into to family and historical as well. But I think it's safe to say that we're better about talking about money as a generation than obviously in generations past. Oh, yeah. hundred percent. Yeah. So what you know, you both mentioned some things that make you happy about the way that we talk about money with our friends now. If you could pinpoint some things that you still think we need to work on, what do you think those would be? I think um, we need to take the shock value away from salary conversations in all like casual conversations, specifically with men. 
I think there is a lot of work to be done in if it's not a safe, like best friend group, right? If you're talking to your, you know, if we're thinking spider web of friends and somebody brings up a salary that, that, or the mm. dead silence mm. piece that other people bring in is the work that still needs to be called out and in real time, because that is what somebody next to that person that gasped is leaving with going, Oh, I better not say mine. I better not talk. I better not share. And I think people need to start realizing that if everyone is honest and confident in how you defend that salary, right? Like, Mm -hmm. I think a lot of people either have never been told that you're worth that and it's okay, or they know they're overpaid and they feel like they're going to be struggling to defend it. And that puts Mm -hmm. everybody at odds, but I'm going, Hey, you better be able to defend why you're worth that. And if you don't, and you need help with that, that's what that conversation should be about. Not about the number. It should be about, well, let's, let's boost that person's confidence so that they feel like they can talk to it. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I agree with that. The, where the worth that, yeah, where there's like a self-worth piece there. Yeah. I've several people in my life recently have gotten significant salary increases. And the first thing that they say is, I can't believe I'm being paid this much to do X. Mm Mm-hmm. And it's like, but you are a senior in your career. Like you've worked to get to this point. Like, don't feel like you need to justify it with that statement. Right. Yes. And I do think that that, and, and I've felt, I have felt that way before as well. And I, and I do think that comes from that money avoidance definition, Mm -hmm. because that is that, that's that old, that's that old you know, oh, money is the root of all evil. And so when you have that so ingrained in your psyche, if you then are offered a role or a promotion or a gig being paid a lot of money, you inherently think, uh-oh, you know, I don't deserve this because I I am a good person or I am this, I am, you know, it's like all that inherent stuff starts to bubble up. So with that said, I do want to um, briefly and, you know, very briefly, because we can always talk about a lot of historical trauma, but um, I'd love to understand just kind of generically what your relationship was and understanding was about money growing up. It's bad and you're always in a state of lack. Mm. And so save everything, spend nothing. Mm. And then you will be, quote unquote, successful. Um, I will say that, you know, I was raised, we did not have a ton of money, especially when I was going into the college transition. But even as a kid, it wasn't like we were sitting in like, we were buying houses in the wealthy subdivision of my town, right? That wasn't what was happening. Uh, I started working at 10 because if I wanted extra spending cash, that was how I got it. It was, you work for that. You find ways to do that. And I worked, I mean, from 10 until now, like I've always worked. I've never not worked all through college. I worked, but concepts of financial management were never taught. So there was, I had a checking account or a savings account that I was opening. Like I opened up as a kid that I could put money in, um, 
you know, I had the MEEP money thing that like was going towards college. There was money from graduation that I had to use to like buy something for college, like my laptop, like there was that, but managing money was not, um, especially future state management of money, you know, credit cards, Mm -hmm. financial Mm -hmm. interest, stocks, none of that was ever taught. I knew how to write a check and sign a check before I went to college, but that was pretty much the extent of it. My parents did a good job of trying to keep their stress and their um, concerns hidden. They poorly did it, but hidden. <laughs> they tried. <laughs> um, but it, at the time I was going to college was 2007. It was the the crash. And yeah. my mom had to have probably the most uncomfortable conversation with me that because she would not want to talk about money still to this day. And she had to sit down and go, I can't afford to send you to college. You have to take out loans if you yeah. want to go. Like there was nothing else, right? Like she was in HR in the auto industry. They weren't getting the bonuses. It was just not going to work, right? So I knew early on, like I was responsible for my money. Like it was just up to me. I was going to have to do it and make the choice. But because I wasn't taught financial management of said money, it was very like surface level. Right. Money yeah. 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 Right. And then you, yeah, mine was much more out. emotionally driven. Like it was like, there was judgment around mm-hmm. purchases and it was like, that's fundamental from the beginning of my world my life and so the what happened is when I got independence and my own money it became um a complete 180 like oh this is a free-for-all now I can do whatever and then that lasted a certain period of time right um but now I've regulated since then so Courtney I can relate to you and yeah and what you had mentioned. so you know I I grew up what I would call kind of squarely middle class we did all go to private Catholic school, but, you know, we were living a typical middle-class life outside of that. And because I come from a religious home life and also went to a religious school, all we ever had drilled into us was money is the root of all evil, the most Mm -hmm. pious, you know, people are the ones who are the best. And, and so you just are ingrained in this dichotomy of like, I can't want money. I can't have money because I'm not a good person if I want or have those things. And yeah. then you struggle because you don't have any money. <laughs> so it's like, right. so it doesn't make any sense, but it is obviously as, as so many kind of religious learnings are very difficult to undo because it becomes part of, you know, your core psyche. That's so interesting to me because I was raised religious and money, you didn't talk about money. That was a a no-no subject along with sex, politics, all the things. But you were taught that there was always somebody less fortunate. So when you have money, you give it to them. So like, and my grandpa still does that. He still gives his money directly to the church we've all we all grew up in. My mom, you know, donates not only time but like money and she's always the one that's supporting any kids fundraiser. There's and even if we didn't have a ton, there was still more than that person. So you give them that. 
And that was rooted in the, you know, Catholic upbringing I had. It wasn't shame, like you can't have it. It was shame as in there's always someone less fortunate, so you must give it away. Yeah. No, I mean, I definitely understand and had a lot of that too, where you, you should give it all away. You should. And I think that's where that piety thing comes in. Like you should, yeah. you, whatever you have, somebody ran else. from the church. Well, right. Exactly. Is because they kept going, give it all away to us. Yep. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, that was, that was a big thing that I had to, had to understand. And then I think also something that my dad would say a lot because like he's from the UP he's was raised in the country and I feel like this is something that you hear from a lot of people who are kind of raised in a rural upbringing which is that whole like well you can't take it with you so it's like yeah you might as well buy the big screen because YOLO like that was the original YOLO where it was like you can't take it with you and I definitely um, grew up with a healthy dose of that on the other side as well, which was like, you know, whatever, get the car, do it, because what are you going to do with it down the line? Um, and I think a lot of those people, you know, they don't necessarily <laughs> look like into the future, like, oh, I might live until 90, so maybe I shouldn't like YOLO today. Um, so there was a lot of that kind of learning as well money was always burning a hole in my pocket and that wasn't really didn't have anything to do with my upbringing necessarily because my brother it you know probably still has like a ten dollar check from his 10th birthday so (laughs) that wasn't a family thing that was just how we both turned out but that's something i struggle with to this day like i am whatever kanye west said like i spend it before i get it that's me So that is something that I have really, really had to work on because I will, you know, think about a big project that I'm getting and I will have budgeted that money away before they even sign the contract. And so (laughs) that is definitely um, something that I am still working on. So obviously we all have such deep-seated kind of things that we learned or maybe didn't learn about money or adages or phrases that we kind of ingrained from our upbringing. And then you go out and you marry somebody who has a completely different history with money as you, and you guys have to come together and figure out how you're either going to work together to manage your finances or how it's going to be an additional hindrance in your life. And now, having just celebrated my sixth anniversary, I definitely see why I always heard, oh, money is the leading cause of divorce. And I never really understood what that meant specifically, like, oh, like, you don't have enough money or what is this, you know, what what does it mean specifically? But now I understand that what that really means is your emotional relationship with money has such a huge impact on the way in which you live your life that when those two things, like if two different people come together with complete opposite emotional relationships with money, it can be very difficult to kind of come to a consensus about how you're going to live your life. And that's something that I struggled with, and we'll talk a little bit about relationships. Um, I am like 
the person who's not good with money. <laughs> and it caused a lot of frustration. But at the same time, I could recognize that Russell had a lot of really good qualities about how he had what his emotional relationship is with money and also how he handles money. And even though I was frustrated at times and wished I could just do whatever I wanted at times, I knew that I wanted to be like him more. And so I really tried to continue to stretch and to learn and to be able to kind of get on that same page. Yeah, I mean, money is, Courtney, you said it, the biggest reason why people uh, get divorced. And it has really nothing to do with money. It has to do with Mm -hmm. what it means to you. And in lots of different ways, it comes boils down to value and what money's if your perceived value is tied up with a dollar figure and how much you're contributing to a situation or partnership is that that can be a root of yeah issues and if you're if you're contributing in ways that don't have a dollar figure attached to it um you're perceived as less than and it can create a lot of a lot of struggle and so I mean it kind of goes without saying since fully separating financially I have had a complete change in my overall uh just well-being around money and the anxiety um and how I I can sleep at night again is really what it comes down to um, because I know that I have control and well, control is not even the right word. I have the ability to make the, making the decisions that I'm like, maybe <laughs> it is just control. I can, <laughs> yeah, it's a therapy session in itself. Um, I know that it's not dependent upon, yeah, I don't have to justify. Maybe that's what it is. I don't have to justify anything. I don't have to. Um, ask questions. Mm-hmm. It's, it. I mean, I, it, and it's amazing how I was so afraid of not being able to be financially independent that it held me back for many years from making the decision to finally do to leave and and to be move forward in the in the, in all the different aspects. Yeah, of your and life. it's amazing how just making the decision to do that opened up so many pathways to mm, right money <laughs> like the the means that i needed that i am sitting in a place better now than i wow. ever thought that i would be at yeah. this point a year in i think it's interesting so. cuz i was always told secretly by my noni and my mom like have your own money and my dad actually mm-hmm. uh, have your own money make your own money yeah. have your own money make your own money right and my mom was the breadwinner in our family. Um, my dad was definitely more of a spender. He made good money just overall. My mom made more money consistently and was more stable. So like I was raised in like women making more money. It was never this dynamic in my personal family of like a man controlling the finances and having that resentment or any, that was never displayed to me. But I had a lot of friends in our early and late twenties end up with men 
that made more money. And when they had their first kid, they would quit their job and stay home because it financially made sense. And there was that, that they're holding like a carrot over their head. Like you can't do this. You can't do that. I get to control those things. And I knew early, I was never going to even allow myself in that situation because I, I couldn't. So I just didn't date or I didn't even, I, not even doing it. Exactly. So I just wouldn't even, because I was terrified of that. I was terrified of that um, feeling of not being able to, to leave or yeah. to be stuck because mm-hmm. of someone else's money. So I work. I, I have always worked. I work really hard. I had money. And when I met John 11 years ago, he had no money. He came from no money, had no money, and was still <laughs> buying things like craft rockets. And like, <laughs> and I was sort of raised in that avoidance mindset and transitioning into my own, like how I feel about money as an adult, making money. And it really did, it didn't even hit me to care about anything until we got engaged and we talked about, well, should we combine like a savings account or a checking account or whatever? And I was like, sure, all the money can go in a pot. Like, I don't care. Um, I had owned the condo. Like it was in my name. I wasn't putting it in his. Like it to me, it was like, well, we're doing this together. So all the money is together. It's the how it's the family money. Like mine, yours, it doesn't matter. It's together. And then we should be budgeting it together out. Right. That was, and John was on board with that. So that's what we did. And, but we're both Leos. We're both independent and are used mm-hmm. to just spending the money we have on our own. We've never really been good at coming at it and looking at the bills and finances like a unit and then distributing like a a budget out. I don't ever want to do that work because I'm like, I do all this other crap. I don't want to manage like a spreadsheet of money. It's like, I'm not an accountant. I hate it. It's like my least favorite thing to do. Um, And we've only ever fought when he buys things that I think are ridiculous (laughs) purchases like Camaro's. So like (laughs) everything else, like we had a limit, like you can't spend over 500 bucks without like in one time without talking to the other person. And then as we've made more money, it becomes a looser reign, right? Like Mm -hmm. you're like, Ooh, we now have more cash. It's no big deal. But I, we still actually debate with friends, you know, about that dynamic, because we have one pot of money. Like our checks get deposited into the same account. So we have always had that. And then we just, we can pull from that. Bills are pulled from that. Like my Mm -hmm. student loans are his student loans. His student loans are my student loans. Like we don't do a tit for tat. And I do think it takes away that anxiety between in the marriage. Like we just know we're in it together for good, bad, you know, through better and worse. So if one of us is really bad at managing money, it impacts the family. Mm -hmm. It's not a you problem. It's an us problem. And I have, you know, friends that are, are still talking to spouses like they're like roommates 
Like I'll give you X for mortgage and I'll buy groceries here or I buy the diapers and he pays for this. I'm like, who wants to do that in a marriage? That seems like so much extra. And I think that, you know, it's, (laughs) so what I've heard and I have listened to a lot of Dave Ramsey and my husband is actually a finance bro and he is not a fan of Dave Ramsey, which I think is so funny. Um, But so I like get all this information from all these different angles. Um, and, you know, you talk about the pot, Devin. I think that, again, so, men- so much of how we go through life has to do with our emotional relationship with money. And when Russell and I got married, I was pregnant. I had just moved my business from one city to another. I didn't have a ton of clients, therefore I didn't have a ton of income. And I felt guilty. I I felt like because of my emotional opinion about money, I did I did and probably still do. I do have some value of like self-worth based on money. And because I felt like I wasn't making mm-hmm. enough money to be a worthy contributor to the household, I said, I don't want to have, I don't want a pot. I don't want one pot because I don't feel like, I don't feel worthy to have access. And that was a decision I made. And I don't, I haven't necessarily come across a ton of women who had been in that same situation to know what they did or didn't do. But I was coming from the standpoint of I am not good with money, so I don't want access to the money. It's like if you are an alcoholic, you're not going to go hang out in a bar. (laughs) (laughs) I I knew myself. You think, though, that's because you don't want to have because you're not good with money and you're afraid that you would make the wrong choice and that would force the conversation or the like the eyes yes, would be like on it impact our relationship. So I, it's like, yeah, if I know that I might do something that would not even like, Oh, this might make my husband mad, but it would, it would be really frustrating to him because it goes against what we both inherently want for our future. I just don't have self-control. So it's not that it's not that we're not on the same page. We're on exactly the same page. I just don't have any self-control. So I'm like, you just keep the money over there. And that's the benefit of you guys getting married later. It it really is. And And it's like, oh, you had awareness of that. One thing that I have to bring up in this situation is that, you know, we were, I don't know, 32 and 38 when we got married. So, I mean, we had gone through all the life lessons of money as single people and had really come to a place, not that we were perfect with money management, but that we really understood ourselves very well. Yeah, that is such a right. big piece. Like coming from somebody who did the one pot situation – I would never recommend anybody to do that ever again. Like, well, and here's the thing about yeah. it. 
I, I don't necessarily say I would recommend one way or the other. I right. think it has a lot to do with the two individuals. And yes. I think that two people mm-hmm. need to sit down and say, what works best for us as human beings? Yes. If you, husband, are very bad at managing money and I am very good at managing money, maybe maybe the pot is something that I am like have Manage. the most control over and then mm-hmm. you have like, a extra little pot of spending money yeah, because I've seen I agree both ways, men and women where if if someone is bad yeah. with money and they have access to the whole pot they'll just go out and use the whole pot one day and then it's like sorry but it's too late yeah the money is- yeah so like I feel like this is probably part of my upbringing where money wasn't really talked about outwardly. I wasn't taught about money management, but there was anxiety around if we had money. There were things about spending when my dad would spend, but like none of that was put on me. So I always looked at it like if I'm choosing to get married, if I'm going to choose a partner then I have to be willing to choose the whole partner, good and bad. And we should just agree on our goals and values as a unit, which should encompass money. Like it should be like, we don't want to have no money or, you know, we can spend whatever. Nobody's allowed to ask a question or anything, but it was never focused. It was always goal, like goal language. Like we're good on, we align on values. We align on what is important and how in theory we look at the pot of money, right? And how in theory, what we should and shouldn't do. And we do not always agree. There are things like when John wants to move or brings up moving, I'm like, why? Like, it's such a waste of money. We like this house. Why do we need to do it? Because he's not talking about it from an investment standpoint. It's more like, I want to, we have more money. We can afford something new. Let's go buy it, right? But we never get super detailed in any of the nitty gritty stuff, which I think keeps us both emotionally like safe, right? Because we're not pushing those things. And we are young And we both sort of came from no money or spend what you have on Mm. things. And, or my mom would be like secretly save and not even talk about that. That I I didn't even know she had saved money until I was married and my dad had passed away. And like all of a sudden she's telling me all these (laughs) family secrets. Yeah. I mean, I think part of the issue with relationships is, you're you evolve as a person right we take money out of it like you evolve Mm -hmm. in all aspects of your life and having conversations with your partner and being able to have self-awareness and call each other out in a safe environment where you know that you're able to be vulnerable and listen to feedback and incorporate it into how you live that that is so integral to having successful management of anything children mm-hmm. yeah family dynamics and then money and jobs yeah. all of the things like so that's key and if you're evolving in a different way and your partner is evolving in a separate way like having that conversation is a hard one as well um, but I think a lot of people make decisions based on what is in the moment that they get married and they don't have right. ongoing right stuff. That's why I harp on like, is 
if you're goal, if you're going to get married, right? So this comes back to like, once again, I wasn't seeking marriage or, or a husband. So this was when I knew I wanted to marry John, it was, are we, is our future end goal the same? Are we aligned? Cause if you're always reminding each other, like we want to be here when we're 50, right? That's what we said. Has that changed Mm -hmm. for you? Has it, because it's rooted in the result, the end result, like our future state. That is such a mature way to look at it that most people getting married are not thinking about. Uh, yeah. Right. Oh yeah. I'm an old soul. Even I'm an old lady. It's not even heart. about soul. It's logic. Like that's rational thinking. Yeah, that's true. That, that you remove emotion from it entirely. Yeah. Right. Yeah. This is why this is such a hard <laughs> conversation because I'm like, what emotion are you talking about? Like, this right. is a well, logical right. conversation. That's, that's, that's just that's ones and zeros. I have one or I Russell. have zero. Like you and Russell are on the same money page. Me and John are also yeah. we're on our own separate. Yeah, except page. I don't want to do the work that Russell is doing. I actually would love if John did all that work and like was like, hey, this is the budget with our one pot. Here's what you need to do to stop spending so much on Amazon crap. Like that'd be great. I'm not saying it would be well received all the time, but like be an interesting dynamic. I don't want to do that. I don't have time to do all that. So, you know, we're, we talked about family, we talked about partners and money. And I just want to ask a couple quick questions about future. So, you know, we've, we've all got kids and what I want to ask specifically is, what are some things that you are doing or trying to do differently with your kids and money than the way that you are raised? Um, so I'm going to credit Russell for this because he actually is the one that brought this up a while ago, probably years ago at this point, about investment properties in lieu like Mm. for your kids like for with the idea that it's it's for the kid um and i was like well that's interesting that's an interesting way to talk about investment properties or rental properties right and that is something that i think both john and i recently have started to actively look at going okay what is a way that we can at least build something for lucy that will ride through ups and downs over decades, like just decades. And we have the extra cash now that we could probably do something like that compared to, I mean, even a year ago, we wouldn't have been able to do it. So let's start looking at those things. And that never would have been, generational wealth was never a thought in my family's head that and it still isn't like I they still don't even look at money in that way I think that is something both John and I talk about a lot now do we know how to do it no but we're trying that's what we're trying to figure out is like okay it makes logical sense Mm -hmm. to do that to build that in a way that's not just my retirement fund how do we do that in a way that's digestible or actionable for us and practical because I am not a Dave Ramsey fan. The minute I heard five minutes, like five minutes into the first thing, it was like, stop buying <laughs> like, coffee. I was like, no, <laughs> because I don't buy that. Like I'm not a cold turkey 
person because I know longevity that doesn't work. Like that's not a ho- how habits are maintained yeah. and lifestyles are built. So I was like, I need something more practical, more actionable in real time. Yeah, I agree. Dave Ramsey is very much like a crash diet of money. And what everyone now knows about crash diets is they never work and you end up gaining double the weight back. (laughs) Kelly, is there anything that you are trying to do differently on purpose for Sage or with Sage? Yeah, so I... um... I don't want Sage to be afraid of money. And so far, she's not. Like, she is. <laughs> well, this is a new generation. <laughs> she is very much the entrepreneur. She knows how to make a buck and um, isn't afraid to talk about it. So, so far, that has been um, good. I don't know if that's just been yeah. watching me and Jason um, have many money conversations and business conversations in general or what. But, um, but something that um, I, from the time she was real little, um, giving her the opportunity to like pay for things for herself and knowing like that you just the physicality of like exchanging dollars because our world is so digital now that like making her actually have dollars in her hand and giving it to a person and having to watch it go yeah. away. Well, right. Cause it doesn't um, feel real her. when you just are like not even swiping a card anymore, but tapping your phone on something yeah. does not feel like money. Exactly. Yeah. So for her, like when she had a lemonade stand, when she was real little, like four and she mm-hmm. made 20 bucks and letting her go to target and pick out whatever it was that she wanted and teaching her like, you have to keep it with under $20 and reading the numbers and all of that. And then having to go to the register and hand the $20 over that concept of like, I value the time and energy that I put Mm -hmm. into making this. And what am I getting in exchange for that? So then it's like, okay, what is the thing I'm getting? And it's interesting to even now that she's 10, she'll be like, oh, well, I'll pay $20 for this. Um, but $35, that's too much. I don't want that. You can buy that one for me. So like, she's already like recognizing the worth. value of her yeah. time and all of that. I love yeah. that. Um, you know what this takes me back to one when we watched the parents test and remember the episode yeah. where I, I loved that episode. It was the episode where they told all the kids that they have what, like an hour to make 20 bucks or a hundred bucks or yes. something. Yeah, Sage would have won that. (laughs) Yeah, she would have. Maybe you guys can. So it's been a week in general. And um, I actually had a really hard moment the other day about money with Lucy. And it it was – it's been – I've carried it all week. Mm -hmm. The other – right after vacation, which is always a hard transition back to Mm -hmm. daycare, no matter what. Could be one day vacation or a week. Doesn't matter. Um. She was like, I really don't want to go to school tomorrow. And I was like, why? You love school. Like you love your teachers and, you know, mom and dad have to go to work. And she goes into her playroom, dumps out her purse and comes to me with all of the money that she has (laughs) been given over last. And she goes, here, you can have my money so that you don't ever have to go back to work. We can just work together. And I have been broken ever since then. Like I, mm-hmm. and I mean that, like I realized then two things. One, I talk about my job in the wrong way yep. yeah. yeah, to her, 
And two, I am creating a relationship with money with her that I also don't want her to feel like it's you sacrifice all for money. Like you, you put that money on a pedestal and like, and I know it's because John and I will say things like when we don't want to have a conversation or like, we're just overextended and we're just like, well, we have to work to make money to like do do all the fun things. Yeah. You know, like the easy out parent kind of thing. So I know what is causing this attitude, but now I have struggled since then going, oh my God, how do I... Yeah. fix it's this slow reframe well, because you right, exactly. you Devin specifically you do not work because of the money you work because right. you a lot of reasons that have nothing to do with money and I think that's probably what she doesn't see a lot of because just kind of thinking here I th- I think that maybe you view it as a older conversation like he's not old yeah. enough for you to explain that like you really love what you do and you like the making the impact and you love the challenge and you love solving these problems and it's easier obviously to just say like we got to go to work so you can so I can put food on the table because that's yeah. again that comes back to the inherent what we learned from our childhood that was something we heard a lot which was I, I've got to go to work so I can you know put food on the table and. I try to separate, I think I, I try and draw this hard line between work Devin and mom Devin aggressive. And I mean like hard line. And I actually think that's part of the problem because what she's seeing is that you are creating such a hard line. And in her mind, she's thinking, oh, well, whatever she's doing on that other side of the line must be really bad. Because she doesn't even want to talk or think about it when she's with me. And with me, it's really good. You're right. Yeah. I think it's simple language change too. You can, and you guys have probably heard this before, but when Sage was little and she would say things like, well, why do you have to work? And I would just change it to, it's not that I have to, it's that I want to. I love yeah. what I do for these reasons that are mm-hmm. you know age appropriate to explain. And also, I really do enjoy that I get paid to do it. So yeah. and money is necessary to live. So it's all important and all part of like making it's helping to her to understand that, yeah, money needs to happen and you are worth getting it because you do a job or you do a, you know, have the impact, but you also enjoy it for the other reasons beyond that. And I think yeah. we're all very lucky to be doing jobs that we right. actually that do we love actually like we, yeah <laughs> like that that's true if you're doing a job that you aren't that's a different different type of conversation but um but yeah I think that's yeah Devin I think Courtney's spot on with uh maybe making that line a little less hard in the sand yeah and I also try like with the kids the days I go into the office letting them see the parts of it that are really exciting so like I obviously love getting dressed so <laughs> That's one of the things that I will talk about in the morning. So instead of making the morning, because the mornings are obviously very hectic on the days I have to go in the office because we're all trying to get somewhere at once. But, you know, I'll I'll bring them into my room as I'm steaming my clothes. And it's like, oh, what are you doing? It's like, oh, I'm steaming my dress. Don't you like, you know, yeah. like this? I'm putting this on to go to work because it's so exciting to be able to, you know, get my things together and I feel really good about, you know, what I'm 
what I'm doing and getting myself together to go to this place. And now it's like whenever I am like getting dressed, they're like, Do you have a meeting? <laughs> I'm like, Yes, I have a meeting. <laughs> and and it's it's nice that, you know, it's it's not they they don't always want me to go to the meeting, but they see how happy yes. I am. Yeah, about going. That's and they see that the days I go into the office, I am in like such a good mood. It's like <laughs> I made my coffee. I'm getting dressed. I'm getting out of here. And it's like, no, they don't realize that half of the reasons because I'm thrilled to be getting away from them. <laughs> but they, they see that it's like, wow, like she must be doing something really exciting. Yeah, she's uh, yeah. so happy. To and it doesn't have to be. Go. I know Devin going into the office isn't your favorite thing to have to do, but I think. Like for me, when something cool happens at work and I, you know, have a really great pitch or something, like I will share it with Sage as if it's something that she should be excited or in the same way she would come to me and say, guess what? I did this cool art project at school. Yeah. I'm really excited about it. Tell me about it. I'll go to her and say, hey, remember that pitch that I was talking about? Um, you know, this happened and this was great and the client said this. And then she can start to understand like, oh, that you know, excitement that you have for the, what you do outside of our house is something to celebrate, not just because of you're in, when you're in school, it goes beyond school. It goes be, you know, into right. your life and your career and, and everything. The thing so, is like, uh, I actually like getting ready and going into the office. What I don't like is the transition that I clearly have set myself the line, right? So the mom to work line, that stress and that pressure, both to the office and then from the office of switching, mm -hmm. like code switching on is yeah. what I actually hate is that's the part yeah. I hate. I hate rushing her to get ready because she's dragging ass in the morning to get out the door <laughs> and, you know, then rushing home to then cook dinner and get her, you know, to decompress from being in school all day. Like I, it's that part that ruins yeah. work. I love yeah. work. I think you both know that. And I think that's been my my struggle. I, I have taken, Kelly, your advice on the talking about projects and stuff. That has worked. She just hasn't correlated work with like those projects with money in the same sense, mm -hmm. which is probably the work yeah. I will have to do over the next you know month or so. I'll keep you guys updated and see if I make any progress. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, obviously, the fact that you recognize it is uh, always, you know, first, first step. step in anything. Yeah. yeah. And you'll figure out, I think, what works for you and what works for her based on the people that you both are. Um, but, you know, based on all of the things that we've talked about with our upbringings, I find that the common denominator is like, whether your parents talked about or didn't talk about money, making money a focus by either hiding it or complaining about it that causes, mm -hmm. you know, that stuff. And we're, you know, I, I'm so, I'm just like, I'm so blessed and so fortunate. And it just makes me feel so happy. But it's like, because, because we have created such a good working marriage around money, our kids don't have to experience a lot of that. Because it frankly just isn't something that comes up. You know, yeah, they know that you need money to buy things, but it's like, 
they don't have a lot, they don't have to hear a lot of that anecdotal kind of stuff that I think we all heard growing up, whether it was, you know, any good, bad or indifferent. And I like that. I will say that I think teaching kids about work is something that I want to figure out because I can definitely see myself in the future, especially like if we continue to make money, like I would absolutely be the parent who like didn't make their kids do any work. And I know that's so bad. So that is something that I really have to deal with and think about. Um, and I think that also has to come from, even though I enjoy what I do, I still have those deep seated memories of like, people all complaining about going to work, live for the weekend, that kind of stuff. And so it's like, I don't want to make my kids work because I don't want to make them feel like it's this horrible thing that they have to do. But that's not true. Like you said, Kelly, I want my kids to be able to see that there are so many options out there and you can find something so cool that you are excited to do. I mean, work as a kid for me was rooted in independence. I wanted independence and my parents were like, well, this is how you get it, Mm, even at a young age. So I was very similar to Sage. I sold every possible thing you could possibly imagine (laughs) at an early age, lemonade, Kool-Aid, cookies I would make. Like it didn't matter. I was peddling it in the front yard and it was because that was equated to freedom. You got to then make a choice that wasn't ruled by my parents' money, right? So they were like, I'll take you to Target. You have the money. You don't want to save it? Mm -hmm. Fine. I'll take you and you can spend it. And I feel like that's why I've always worked in some of the worst jobs. Like I, I was a banquet. I worked at a banquet center wearing like a red bow tie and a white button down shirt, (laughs) carrying massive heavy trays for years. Yeah. I've done big. Just once or twice, I dropped a whole thing. I've a whole yes. thing of tea and coffee. I've done whole. so many things, and I I worked open to close all through sports season on Sundays because I was the only day I didn't have a tournament. All through high school, like it was just rooted in independence. If I did it, mm-hmm. I had money to take my car somewhere farther than the twenty dollars a week I would get for gas. Like. <laughs> I don't know. And that was always more appetizing as a child, even a young child. And Lucy is very much rooted in independence. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's a great way to teach independence. Mm -hmm. It's a good tool. So I didn't even get into career and money, but I feel like that's a whole nother conversation. So we will, we'll, we'll cross that bridge another day. Um, But the last thing I want to, um, to bring up is we've talked about, you know, older generations and what they've taught us. We've talked about our generations and we've talked about our kids' generation. The one very quick anecdote I want to bring up is Gen Z. So, you know, everyone talks about Gen Z the way they talked about us millennials back in the day. I read a very interesting article that I will put in the show notes that actually says that Gen Z is regressing in talking about money. Hmm. And the reason they're regressing, which is going to be like, oh my gosh, duh, once you guys hear it, is because they are the social media generation and they don't like talking about it because all they do is see other people who perceive themselves to have so much more than they do that it makes them shut down completely. Yep. Yeah. 
And that's so sad to hear. It is. And I can totally see why that's happening. I mean, I think Gen Z is probably the most at-risk generation for so many things because of the impact on that social media has had on that group because Gen Alpha is being raised by millennials. So, Oh, is that what our kids are called? I've been wondering. Yeah. So I think that generation is going to be set up to really make changes. I think Gen Z is going to sit in this very hard, like boomer Gen X bubble of Mm, things because they've been, it's, it's sort of millennial Paris Hilton age where we were splashed with like heroin chic and right. Playboy, right? Like, mm-hmm. and all that. They messed up our body image. Yes. Our, yeah. And this is not just body image, but all image. So house it. Like before, when I grew up, I knew who the rich kids were. But like, it was because their parents lived in the nice subdivision or had the big house. Or yeah. like, it wasn't the same thing. And it still mattered. When I couldn't buy certain things or get certain things, it still mattered. But it wasn't plastered in front of me for 24 hours a day. Exactly. It's like, yes, of course, you know, we wanted an Abercrombie yes. outfit or whatever, but yeah, it wasn't, it was not the same. And you also have to consider that, sure, you know, we all knew the kids at school who, you know, maybe showed up at 16 with a new car or wanted an outfit that, you know, we necessarily couldn't afford, but the amount of wealth that they're seeing online Mm -hmm. is astronomically different than an outfit from the mall. And most of it's probably false. Oh, absolutely. It's like private jet, like everyone's pretending to live this Kardashian lifestyle and no one really is. Yeah. Or they're making it look super accessible to get. Like if you were to ask kids in Sage's age group, what they want to be when they grow up, they would oh. say YouTubers. Oh, oh because they, they think they're going to be millionaires. Yeah, because it makes they make it look so easy. Yeah. You just make these like, you know, seamlessly easy videos where they're doing fun stuff with their friends all the time, and they give away, give away, and, and you know, quotes like yeah. ten thousand dollars to the person who clicks the subscribe button. Like, how can they give away that much money? They must have a ton of money. Yeah. I mean, I I think that. Um, that's probably one of the biggest reality checks that will hit that group. And it'll hit them sooner than later. And the one advantage I think the three of us have being in the industry that we're in and I being so logical and not emotionally attached to money, I'm way more practical at thinking like the influencer trend, the same with celebrity, um, you know, brand deals will fade and cycle the same way like lace camis fade and cycle. So like (laughs) that's the conversation I've had with like my nieces or younger kids like. Or like Sage, I say, go ahead, try it. Make some videos. See what kind of traction you get yourself. Yeah. She has done, she's tried it all and she's like, how come I only have like four likes on this picture? Mm-hmm. Like, first of all, your account's mm-hmm. private, so it's everybody that I know. But <laughs> yeah. second, like, like yeah, it takes a lot of work to get a thousand likes, yeah. let alone a million. So she, yeah, she's uh, learning. Yeah, I do think way, that there is a huge learning curve because just like you know, emotionally, everyone says, "Oh, you're seeing everyone's shiny Instagram feed." In the same way, you're seeing everyone's shiny Instagram feed you're not seeing all the work it takes Mm -hmm. to make 
eight second video that they have to put out every single day. And as somebody who works in social media, it's like, I don't want that life. No. Like the amount, I cannot imagine having to get up every single day to make an eight second video. Like, Mm. give me a break. (laughs) Mm -mm. Mm -mm. And I think a lot of Gen Z don't think of it that way. No, and their parents aren't equipped to do it. So like their parents weren't raised in, like we're the generation that's equipped to have that conversation because we're working in that space and we grew up in the transition phase, right? So like we saw Mm -hmm. what it was before, we saw what it was at the early stage and we know what it is now. But Gen X plus like the older side of Gen X probably wasn't as ingrained. And so they don't even know how, if they're not in it now in the field at all, they don't know how to logically walk their kid through that. They're just going, cool, let's figure it out and it'll be fine. And boomers definitely don't. Like they probably are like, don't do it. Go. Right. They're saying like, shut up and get a real job. (laughs) An engineer. Yep. Yeah, exactly. Oh man, this was such a good conversation. So I want to leave it off with a little um, actionable advice that we might have. So um, I have two money books that I would like to recommend. And if you two have any money or finance focused books, I'd love for you to share. So the first one is um, sort of money but sort of lifestyle. And it's the four hour work week by Tim Ferriss, which I will bring up all the time. Um, I've read this book probably a dozen times over the past 10 years. I am finally, I have finally made my muse, you guys. I'm so excited. So call me in a year. going. Um, so that's exciting. I really love that book. And then another that's a little bit more um, emotional centric was the book Get Rich, Lucky Bitch. And I didn't know what the book was about. I read it, um, I think, right after Trip was born, so about five years ago. And it is very much focused in the mindset shift. So it's about changing your mindset and making small tweaks to flex those muscles that help you change your mindset around money. And I found that really good um, at releasing some mental blocks that I had. So I don't have any books to recommend, but um, I listened to a podcast called The Financial Feminist that I would encourage everybody to listen to. Um, Her name is Tori Dunlap, and she's just really good at sort of taking some of the BS out of the finance conversation and breaking down different topics um, similar to like what we did today and you know how to look at banking and investing, but in digestible 30-minute episodes. So God, we are all following on brand here. Um, My (laughs) recommendation (laughs) um, isn't a book or a podcast or anything like that. Um, My best relationship shift with money came through the form of therapy. And it was in like a, I hate to call it life coaching, but that's what the woman called herself. But it was not what we know now from social media is like woo woo life coaching. It was like life therapy through the lens of coaching and business development and that kind of thing. And um, how I decided to sign up with her is, um, this is back when I was 25, um, was she went right in on my relationship with money and the vulnerabilities Mm -hmm. there and working through my emotional shit through the lens of money 
is when my self-development started and it hugely impacted and changed uh, my trajectory for the rest of my life. Ooh, so love it. highly so recommend. Bring it up to you're... your counselor, bring it up to your therapist yes. and go find yeah. somebody online. I love that. Exactly. Oh, I love all of this. Well, I loved this conversation because um, I love our ability to have financial and money discussions. I appreciate that from you both so much. And it has made such an impact in my life in the time that we have known each other. I can attribute things that you have both said to me, encouraged me on that have directly impacted my ability to make money and ability to improve my relationship with money. So thank you. Aww. Yes. Likewise. Likewise. Both of you. Yeah. This, I love you guys. We're so oh. lucky. We're so lucky. <laughs> we are lucky. I love it. All right. Well, it's been a good one. I think this is supposed to be short, but our conversations never are. So <laughs> check out the show notes. We'll have links to all of the resources that we shared and where we got all of our research from. And, you know, make some money moves like Cardi B. And <laughs> we'll, we'll see you next week. Bye. Bye, everyone. Bye. Thanks for joining us for another episode of My Vagina Hurts. Remember to hit that subscribe button so you never miss out on our next candid conversation. And don't forget to follow us on Instagram at MVHThePod. Got a story you want us to share or a topic you want us to tackle? Slide into our DMs or submit your anonymous vagina scary story at MyVaginaHurts.com. Thanks for being a part of the MVH world. And until next time, stay stressed and sexy.